All right. Let's start that over. I've known this congregation by reputation for a long, long time, and uh, I've always appreciated what you stand for and the, the truth that you make sure that you share with others. And as Doug said, he and I have uh, known each other for many, many years. Uh, Doug and Jody came as uh, counselors at uh, Indian Creek Youth Camp. While Denise and I were directing that, we've been directing a week for about 30 years. And Doug and Jody were newlyweds, a uh, young couple. And Denise and I preached uh, and uh, shared our services with the Blackwater Macedonia congregation in North Alabama. And after I uh, decided to leave and do mission work in Colorado, I recommended uh, Doug for that work, and that's what we think, think of them. We also know your uh, youth minister, uh, Will Tucker, and his uh, wife, uh, Colleen. They, uh, uh, Denise had Will in her cradle roll class. That's, uh, we've actually known him all of his life, and we uh, always good to, to see him again and really close to, to his family. I think uh, maybe uh, Leah Hayes Hunt is a member here, and uh, we've known her all of her life. So if you need any information on any of those people, um, we've got plenty we could share with you, and it's all good. And uh, we, I look out and see a lot of other faces that I recognize, and we don't have all long-term relationships the way I do with the ones I mentioned, but I see Paula and uh, uh, William Tidwell, and Denise and I have had the privilege for the last two years to be uh, driving up to Lightwood uh, Church of Christ and preaching there, and so... Uh, you have two of ours with you while they're in college, and uh, their father is one of the elders at Lightwood, and so it's good, good to see them. I can't think of a better topic, better theme for us to think about than fortifying the family. As you contemplate those things, and Doug mentioned my counseling uh, training, uh, let me tell you a little bit why that occurred. As soon as I started preaching, people assume that I knew how to counsel, and um, I didn't. I had a pretty good grasp of the scriptures, uh, I felt like. I had been taught those all my life, but I had very little life experience, and people came to me in all kinds of life conditions, and they'd be emotionally distraught about things, and I was just frightened out of my wits that I was going to quote one more scripture, and they were going to have a nervous breakdown. You know, they were trying to clear the fog from their minds and sort out their lives and they certainly wanted to apply the scriptures but it's just too much without somebody putting life on life and so I went back to school just out of self-defense I wanted to be a better minister uh, never sought degrees to have degrees just wanted to be a better minister that's still who I am I consider myself a a minister of Christ I want to share the message of God's word that everybody I can and what I learned early on as a minister, that people um, have life complications. And what they try to do is to um, start where they are and try to figure out where to go. Rather than start where God intended for them to be and then address those problems and issues that they're facing. And so I dealt with a lot of problems. Uh, problematic families. And in counseling, we would say dysfunctional families. And some folks that we think are dysfunctional are functioning fine. They just don't function the way we do. 
And if they tried to organize their life the way we organize ours, it would be very dysfunctional for them. So you have to make sure that you don't impose your functions on them, but you share the principles of God's Word, and that's what fortifies a family. Good to see this number of young people, because the things we're going to deal with applies to all of us. And since I dealt with so many problems, I decided that I would not any longer perform any wedding ceremony without whoever asked me to perform the wedding ceremony have at least five sessions with me where we could look and see what God said about who they should be and what marriage is all about and what those family functions were. And I thought, instead of just always dealing with the problem, if I have an opportunity to influence early on so they can start their marriage and continue in their marriage and enjoy in their marriage everything God designed, then that's where I'm going to camp out. And so I require of them at least five sessions, and I prepare some material that deal with all the aspects. If they follow, I will, will not be dealing with those problems in their marriage in the future. Or if we do deal with them, I'll have something to remind them of. And here's where I always start, and that is where God started. It's not by accident that the Scriptures are revealed the way they are, in the order that they're revealed. It's not by accident that you began that Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God. And that's where we have to begin. That we're not going to fortify our families. We're not going to have righteous lives. We're not going to be who we ought to be if we don't start with God. And if we don't listen to God. And so what I emphasize in that very first lesson that I share with those that I do premarital counseling with, and just so you don't tune me out, those of you who are married say, oh, he's going to be talking about premarital counseling. I would share this material with the preacher students. I used to teach at the Memphis School of Preaching, and I would share this material with the preacher students. And they were excited to get to premarital counseling, but they're always, you know, a little bit um, aggressive and say, you have anything on marriage counseling? You know, they're thinking ahead, and, and I said, I sure do. I go in my computer, and at the top of the page where it says premarital counseling, I just change that. It says marital counseling. I use the very same material. Because if they're having problems in their marriage, they're not doing what they should have done and prepared for in premarital counseling. And that's all I do. Because those are where problems come in as we ignore what God designed. So let's go back to that beginning and let's particularly look at, at Genesis chapter 2. And oftentimes we don't look at it this way. We, we start as preachers with Genesis 2 and verse 18 where God had created everything and He placed it there for... Adam's benefit. And he allowed Adam to name all the creatures and, and to view everything that he'd created and to absorb that he was the only one of his kind. And again, I don't think that was by accident. People say, well, I wonder why he created Adam and then he created Eve later. But maybe for him to absorb that everything else God created had someone of its kind that it could produce after its kind, and maybe for Adam to absorb that and maybe be more appreciative of God providing for him a helpmate, someone like him, someone of his kind. For whatever reason, God did it in that order. But when God saw Adam being the only one of humankind, He said it was not good for man to be alone. And the way we quote that sometimes as preachers, we say it's not good for man to be single. And that's not what he said at all. 
And we even in the church sometimes, we develop this mindset and this disposition that causes us to emphasize single being unmarried. And we have singles group. And if you do, I'm not insulting you because every congregation I've been in, we probably have, have emphasized that. But you see, single means whole, unique, complete individual. And so Genesis 2 and verse 18 did not say, it is not good for man to be whole, unique, complete, an individual. Because that's how God made him. He made Adam to be Adam. Completely Adam. Just exactly the way God wanted Adam to be. He was whole. There wasn't anything lacking in Adam. And when he put Adam to sleep, he wanted to make sure that Adam had no input on who Eve was going to be. And he made Eve just like he wanted Eve to be. Whole, unique, and complete. They were everything God wanted them to be. They knew everything God wanted them to know. And they had everything God wanted them to have. Now when we misuse that word, and we don't do it intentionally, but we collect people in a singles environment, well, all these unmarried people, we say we have a singles group, and it is kind of emphasized that you don't need to be single. You don't need to be unmarried. You need to find somebody to marry. And so we have singles group and folks move into a particular town and they're seeking out a congregation. And if they're unmarried, they call around and see if there are singles. <clears throat> when I preached in, in Tennessee at the Cordova congregation, I got a phone call one day and uh, the man on the other end was asking about the congregation. He just moved to Memphis area and and he's asking different things, you know, doctrinal things. And, and then he said, uh, do you have a singles group? And I said, we sure do. He said, about how many? And at that time, we were about 250 members in the congregation. I said, about 250. He said, wow, you have 250 singles? And I said, we sure do. Because you see, our goal as Christians were to be whole, unique, and complete individuals in our relationship to God. But I wasn't going to hang up with him having that misconception. I knew what he was asking, how many unmarried people do you have? I'm unmarried and maybe I'm looking to marry and how many choices do I have? And so I can come and check that out. And when I said 250, he thought, wow, what a choice. I want to go and check out that singles group. But I emphasized to him, I said, well, let me tell you where I'm coming from. Single to me means whole, unique, and complete. And I'm hoping that every member of this congregation is that. But those, if you're asking how many we have who are unmarried, and I gave him a lot smaller number, <laughs> uh, he wasn't as enthusiastic about visiting us after he found the, the lower number. But you see, we use it that way, and sometimes we put pressure on folks to marry when they haven't yet become whole, unique, and complete. And I have folks who come to me and they are seeking someone to make them whole. A man may be seeking a woman to make up for his deficiencies. A woman may be seeking a husband to bring certain security to her because she doesn't feel whole. But you notice this very first couple was everything God wanted them to be before He put them together in a marital relationship. 
God wasn't accidental in doing those things, and He didn't leave that to happenstance. He made sure that they were who they needed to be first. And that's who we need to be. And what we need to also understand is, and when I preach these kind of messages and when I counsel with folks, that they immediately feel like, well, you know, that wasn't who, I wasn't a whole complete person when I married, and they feel guilty about that, and they kind of beat themselves up about that, and I emphasize to them, I wasn't either. So what do you do when you recognize that you are not a whole, complete, unique individual? Through God's grace, we can become that person. We can make those changes in our relationship with Him and our knowledge of His Word and our application of those principles. That's who we have to be. And that's what we have to do if we're going to have fortified families, strong families. They don't just happen. The only way they happen is to have strong individuals that give life to those relationships. Not any question, I wouldn't think in our minds, that that first couple fit that bill, didn't they? That they were everything they should be before he said, this is who you are as a couple. See, when you think about that, there's not anything in our relationship that we need to ignore when it comes to that individuality. When you think about the individual relationship that we are to have in Christ, I hope that we understand and that we contemplate that everything about our spiritual existence is individual. When you think about Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, and it gives that judgment scene, very final scene, and it emphasizes that not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who art in heaven. Now who is that? How is that determined? That's determined by our individual lives. When you think about Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's a very individual thing. I am not going to stand before God and be justified because my wife is doing His will. Now she might influence me by doing His will, but I'm not going to be judged based on her keeping of His will. I'm not going to be judged whether or not she seeks the kingdom of God first. I may be influenced by her seeking the kingdom of God first, but I am going to be judged by whether I do those things or not. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, we are to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. Ourselves. We have to make sure we are individually everything God wants us to be. And oftentimes when I'm doing premarital counseling, you know, they're so, couples are so infatuated with each other, they hear audibly the conversation we're having, but they're just too smitten by the immediate atmosphere of, of what's taking place that they really don't always absorb how important it is for them to be whole in their relationship with the Lord. So that's why I require five weeks. By then... They really hear what's being said. And see, I give them homework. And I'll say, look, the only way I'm going to counsel with you is if you agree to do the homework. If you don't do the homework, don't come see me. If you haven't worked on these things during the week, 
that we don't really have anything to talk about. And if they ever say, well, you know, we, we just didn't have time, and I'll say, then you really don't have time to get married. Because here's what I require of them. When I send the homework home with them, they have to agree that they're going to find a specific time of day, the same time every day, where they sit down together, and if they are not physically living in the same place, I'm not talking about in the same house, but they're not in the same town. I have some time where folks are, uh, they're grown and they have, uh, they're off at college and so they've been courting for years and, and so they talk on the phone, but they have to have the same time every day where they take 15 minutes and they read the material that's printed. They look up the verses together and they read them. And then they talk about what they've read. And then they go to God in prayer asking Him to help them make application of what they've read. If they say, we don't have time, if they don't have 15 minutes a day to read God's Word together, to talk about what He said to them, and to address Him in prayer and ask for His help and assistance that they would be who He would have them to be, then they really don't have time to get married. I'm not bashful about that. I don't try to burst their bubbles and I don't try to rain on their parade and I don't try to take all their joy away. But this is serious business. If we're talking about fortifying families, we don't start with dysfunctional families and try to work back there. We start with a plan. And God wanted us to be whole and unique and complete. He wanted that plan to be duplicated. And that's why in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, He said, thus... After everything had been demonstrated to us, after he had made that first couple and after he had placed them together, he said, thus shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they twain shall be one flesh. There would be a template you could follow. This man would have grown up in an environment where two whole unique people were his parents. And we know that was true of the first couple, don't we? Adam and Eve were everything God wanted them to be. And from that day forward, God intended for children to grow up in that environment so they would know how to become whole. And when they became whole as a man and as a woman, they would leave their father and mother. But not until then. If you're not prepared to leave your father and mother, you're not prepared to get married. Because you're not whole and unique. If you can't survive on your own. See, you need to spend some time. Adam spent some time surviving on his own, didn't he? And he appreciated having helped me to share that, that life and that responsibility with him. You see, when the Scriptures emphasize these things, they, they don't change. We'll talk about this later, but you know, when Jesus was on earth, there were certain changes that had been made in man's mindset about marriage, and they were very flippant about it. And they came to him, tempting him and trying to trap him on questions. And they asked him about Moses allowed them to put away their wife for any cause. And they wanted to know what he thought about it. In Matthew chapter 19 and 9, he said, Have ye not read? Where does that take us back? Have you not read that he that made them in the beginning made them male and female? And he rehearsed what we've just talked about. Here's what God expects. God expects a whole man and a whole woman in their relationship with Him to be able then to reproduce that family environment. 
that will be everything He intended for it to be, enjoy everything He intended for it to enjoy, and then to be able to replicate itself just like He designed it. In our world, we're so far from that in so many situations, it's just unbelievable, unthinkable. And we get frustrated because we're out there and being uh, sloshed about in this great sea of life and we think, well, maybe we need to make some adjustments or changes or maybe we need to call things differently or, or maybe we need to make some compromises and, and maybe we need to look at things from a different vantage point and that will never, ever work. The only thing that's going to work is to do what God told us to do in the way He told us to do it. And so every person who is unmarried, ought to make sure that they are doing everything within their power to be everything God wants them to be in their personal relationship with God. And if that's true, here's something else that I do with couples. As I require them to read the book of Ruth. Most beautiful love story you've ever seen. It's kind of a complicated context. And here's what I emphasize to them. And here's what I emphasize to parents and the grandparents. And so I want you to listen. If we're going to fortify families, we need to give them good reading material. And the best reading material is God's book. Not only go back at the beginning and see what He created and, and what He expected, but look at some examples of those who, in a less than perfect environment, stayed focused on God and His purpose for their life. But when you read through the book of Ruth, here's what I emphasized to young people and to their parents and to their grandparents. There is real courtship that takes place there in the book of Ruth. And courtship is not just buying chocolates and flowers and dressing up and wearing cologne or perfume for a period of time to impress somebody. That's kind of how we define courtship, isn't it? Real life things are happening. In the midst of a lot of tragic things that happen, you see two individuals that are whole, complete, and unique. In that beautiful passage in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and following, that's often quoted, referred to during wedding ceremonies, and we intend that to be a, a spouse or a, a, a prospective husband or prospective wife saying that to their prospective spouse, where it talks about whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge, and thy people shall be my people. But it starts with saying, thy God shall be my God. We're right back where we started, aren't we? If God is who He's supposed to be in our life, then when we make commitments, when we express things, we mean them. But that was said of a widow who promised to take care of her widowed mother-in-law. And courtship is doing all the field investigation, calling in all the witnesses, asking all the right questions, making sure you pay attention to all the evidence, promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and then making your decision based on those facts. You see, that field investigation in that particular context of that beautiful love story tells you how you can become a whole, complete, unique individual. 
You see Ruth, if you do that field investigation, you find her literally in the field. And she's keeping her promise to her mother-in-law. She's out gleaning in the fields. And, and her God, Naomi's God, became her God. And, and the God of Naomi provided means that you couldn't, you couldn't harvest the corners of your fields. And if something fell off the wagging or the, the means that you were collecting all the harvest, you had to leave that in the field for those who were poor and those who were wayfarers. And so Naomi's God provided that for Ruth. And Ruth trusted that and she went into the field and, and she gleaned constantly because she promised her mother-in-law she'd do that. She wasn't going to leave her. She was going to take care of her. And we have Boaz coming on the scene and he asked about that whole unique woman that was in the field. Notice Ruth's question was not, where is the singles group in the land of Israel? Where are all the unmarried Israelite men so that I can marry? Those weren't discussions. And Naomi didn't say, here's where they are. It wasn't discussed. How can I take care of you? Where can I go? And when Boaz asked about Ruth... He was told that she came out here early. She's been here all day. With the exception of just a few moments break. A little field investigation going on, isn't it? Asking questions about this person. They weren't just physically attracted to each other and here was this love story. Here's real life taking place. And then when Ruth gets home and she tells her mother-in-law where she's been... Her mother-in-law says, that person is near of kin to us. Now here's what you can expect. That's a safe place for you to be. That she didn't say quit working and, and dress up real pretty and go out there and try to get his attention. He might marry you and you won't have to work anymore. He said, you stay close to his servants. You'll be taken care of. That's a safe place for you. And when you look at those things, it's all about being that whole, unique individual. And multiple times in that beautiful love story, you'll have, have emphasized both of Ruth and of Boaz. Let me tell you a, a quick little story that connects my counseling and preparation to the application of being a whole unique individual. A number of years ago, I was counseling a young lady that was um, uh, late teens, and she'd been a student at Fried Hardman. Her younger brother was killed in an automobile accident. And she came to me and she obviously dealing with the grief, but during that process of, of, of going through her grief and trying to uh, get focused in life and give meaning back to her life, she discussed with me that she um, had this little rural congregation. And she said, they don't have any other young people. I'm the only one. But I love them and they love me and I've debated on whether to go to the congregation in town. They have a lot more young people. And, but it just breaks my heart to think that I would, I'd leave these folks who love me and care about me. And, and so we talked about that. And I got her to read the book of Ruth. And she said, you know, I won't ever find a husband here. There's not anybody my age. And I said, well, you read the book of Ruth and let's talk about that from week to week. 
And our conversation kind of boiled down to, I said, if you'll get busy gleaning in the fields, you're going to run right smack dab into Boaz one of these days. And he's going to be out there gleaning in the fields. You want somebody who knows how to glean in the fields. You, you want somebody who can share with you in life and understand how to protect you in life. And the only way you're going to really find that kind of person is somebody out there doing it. So a number of years passed. She went off um, to school at uh, Oxford to Ole Miss. And my phone rang one day. And when I answered it, without identifying who she was, I guess just assuming I'd know who she was, this excited voice on the other end said, Brother Jerry, I found Boaz. <laughs> She'd gone off to school, and while she was at the, um, the Christian Student Center, she'd met this young man, very active Christian young man, who was faithful to the Lord and would protect her in the Lord, would serve with her in the Lord, would help her continue to be that whole, complete, unique individual because that's who she had become. She didn't leave that little congregation. She'd drive back home on the weekends and she worshiped with that little handful of people. Now, they don't all turn out this way. So don't hold me to it, young people. Say, well, I want it just like that. But here's the rest of the story. That young man finished his teaching degree at University of Mississippi. He then came to the Memphis School of Preaching. And he went back and was a preacher of that little country congregation. Ah, oh, not only did she stay and encourage them in her youthfulness. Not only was she a whole unique individual and provided for that congregation that was older and aging, that reminder of life and commitment, that they served the same God, that they were committed to each other. But now because of her wholeness and uniqueness, she brought them a minister who could serve with them. Beautiful story. They had a little girl and they're expecting a son here for too many months. And they had posted that they were expecting on Facebook and had um, indicated what the name of the son would be. And I said, I'm just shocked that you're not going to name him Obed. You know, it's just uh, amazing to me. If you're going to be Ruth and Boaz, you've got to name your son Obed, haven't you? See, those are the kind of things that as parents and as grandparents and as older members of the church, we ought to get back to. That we ought to emphasize to our young people, you get busy serving the Lord. We're going to provide means for you to serve the Lord. And we want you to work beside us as we serve the Lord. And God has designed His spiritual family. This spiritual field that we work in. He has provided for our care that all of us have what we need. And all of us need to do our part to make sure we provide not only for ourselves, but for others. And if we get our young people busy gleaning in the fields, they're going to run right smack dab into folks who are busy gleaning in the fields. 
And that's who you can serve the Lord with. And sometimes when you recognize those things, you appreciate when you go back and you not only read God's design from Genesis chapter 2, but you also read books like the book of Ruth and you see that that was an entirely different courtship, an entirely different focus in what our society emphasizes today. Even to the point that Boaz was willing. You remember when Naomi sent Ruth to the threshing floor? And she described the custom where she was to lie at Boaz's feet and, and uh, pull his skirt over her. And then to identify who she was. And there was a process where the near of kin, nearest of kin, could take on the responsibility of the one whose husband had died. And therefore produce seed for the deceased person. One thing that fascinates me about that story when you get to the next to the last chapter in the last chapter of the book of Ruth is evidently Boaz had been thinking about that and when Ruth presented herself he said to her I'm not the nearest of kin I'm near kin but I'm not the nearest and he said something that's interesting to me that's different than what our society emphasizes that we often overlook he said to her if the nearest of kin performs his responsibility, you'll be taken care of. You know what he was saying? If the nearest of kin married Ruth, she would have everything she needed to be cared for. And he would provide seed for her deceased husband. Think about that. You see, I wasn't whole and unique when my wife and I married and I wouldn't have been able to say that. I wouldn't have been able to say, if there's somebody that can take better care of you spiritually, if there's somebody that could provide it for you better than I can, I'm okay with that. See, I wanted her for myself. I was selfish. I really wasn't thinking about what was best for her. I was thinking about what was best for me. But if you're going to be a whole, complete, unique individual, you've got to say, this is what God expects. And I want for that other person what God wants for them. And if I'm not the one to do that, I'm okay with that. We know the rest of the story. Naomi said to Ruth, you don't worry about that any longer. He'll not be able to rest until it's taken care of. And he goes and he goes through all the proper procedures. He presents to the elders at the gate the circumstances of Naomi and Ruth's condition and gives the nearest of kin. First of all, starts with the property they own, and Dan kind of wants the property, doesn't he? But then he kind of narrows it down and says, now when you take the property, you're also going to have to take Ruth. And now if he takes Ruth, he's going to have to share his inheritance with any child that he produces with Ruth. And the man didn't want to divide his inheritance. A little different attitude than Boaz had, didn't he? See, Boaz was a whole, complete, unique individual that was going to survive in his relationship to God with or without Ruth. And that made him the very best person to have a relationship with Ruth because he was whole and unique and complete in his relationship with God. The same is true with Ruth. When he reflects with her at the threshing floor, he said, here's what your reputation is. 
He sent her by night so people wouldn't see her at the threshing floor because he didn't want to damage her reputation. He said, the whole city knows who you are. And they know about your righteous lifestyle. He was acknowledging she was a whole, complete, unique individual. If we're going to fortify our families, we're going to have to start with ourselves. We're going to have to be who we need to be. And each person here this morning can be that person. Even if we made mistakes in the past, we can acknowledge those mistakes, repent of those mistakes, be forgiven of those mistakes, and be whole and unique and complete in our relationship with God. Then that allows us to be for each other what we ought to be. We go back to the context itself. You see, we'll never escape that individual responsibility. When you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an answer of the deeds done in this body. According to that which we have done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You see, I'm one of 11 children. I hid a lot of times behind my older brothers and sisters when, when discipline was coming down. And sometimes I could point fingers that maybe somebody else had a greater responsibility. But when I became a whole, complete, unique individual, I realized my deeds were my deeds, for good or for evil. We stand before God in judgment. I'm the only one in this body. I need to be everything God wants me to be in this body. I need to do everything God wants me to do with this life. And that's true of you. That's true of all of us. If we are who we need to be, we'll be prepared to fortify our families. We'll provide exactly what we need when we need to do it, without reservation, without hesitation. We appreciate your attentive nature this morning. I can't see that clock in the back, but I have my wife who's given me signals. She hadn't cut me off yet. She counted down for me. And, uh, and when she goes like this, she means it. You know, that means that's it. No more discussion. Uh, conversation's over. We see the thing about the personal application of those things is neither me nor my wife would look back and say we were everything we needed to be when we married. But through God's grace and our patience with each other, we became those people. We worked hard at becoming those people. And we can tell you this, there is a night and day difference in our marriage by us being whole, complete, and unique. It would be a burden to me if I thought my wife could not survive spiritually without me. That'd be a burden. I want her to have her relationship with God and be obedient to God herself. And with that, I want her to have the confidence whether she's present or not, I'm going to be who I need to be. Then together, we can be everything God designed for us to be. And we can have everything God designed for us to have in that relationship. I hope you see why I require those couples who are wanting me to perform the wedding ceremony to spend a little time looking at who they ought to be. And by the way, I've had folks back out of getting married. It's always sad. They cry and I cry. 
but I'd a whole lot rather them cry making good decisions to say we need to back off of this and we need to wait on this than to have them in my office crying because they made really bad mistakes. And they weren't who they needed to be and they did things they shouldn't have done because God wasn't first in their life. Thank you for allowing me to be here today.